You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Going to that game, Delaware last weekend, a 21-6 win against Albany. It moved the Blue Hens to 7-2 and overall on the season and 5-1 and in conference play. You mentioned it, Jake, those five conference wins tied the Blue Hens with the main Black Bears atop the CAA. James Madison was upset by New Hampshire, and Towson lost to Maine. So those two teams who had been tied with the Blue Hens and the Black Bears atop the CAA are now a game behind in the same ballpark with Elon and Delaware's opponent this weekend, Stony Brook. The Seawolves are a spot behind the Blue Hens in the latest FCS Stats Top 25 poll. Certainly a difficult matchup for Delaware, and if you remember back to last season's game, certainly a close one. Delaware defeating the Seawolves 24-20. They once trailed 20-7. Delaware was on their heels as Stony Brook was driving at the end of that game, needing a touchdown to win it. They were unable to do so, and it was one of the two wins that really catapulted Delaware back into the national conversation a season ago. Now they go back to Stony Brook this year, likely needing one win in their next two games to make the playoffs, but both if they want a share or perhaps sole possession of the CAA Conference Championship. The uh, narrative between last game to this one is not going to be the same. Last year was the le- end of Joe Walker's quarterback. Or don't want to say the end of Joe Walker's quarterback career, but the end of Joe Walker's starting quarterback career. He still plays his Wildcats here and there. But that was a game where we were still trying to find our identity at the quarterback position. At the at the end of the first, Joe Walker came out, Caruso came in, and played a heck of a game. This year, we're not worrying about the quarterback position. Frankly, we're not worried about any specific position because we have Pat Kehoe, which we're pretty much full send on. We, we're, we're in it. We're in the Pat Kehoe boat. And now it's different because this team can now focus on Stony Brook. They don't need to worry about their own team. Rocco and the whole gang can focus on beating a very strong running attack of the Stony Brook Seawolves and a decent passing attack, but a running game is something that we have to watch out for. Donald Leotine and Jordan Gowans, the two Stony Brook running backs, both average about 90 yards per game. They're toward the top of the CAA leaderboard in terms of rushing yards per game. And if you go back to last weekend's matchup against Albany, I thought Delaware did a nice job against a pretty solid running attack led by Elijah Ibatogan-Hanks who was third in the CAA coming into the weekend with about 86 rushing yards per game. But that also featured a second back, kind of like Stony Brook does, in Carl Mofer, who last season when Ibatokan Hanks was injured, was the full-time starter for the Great Danes. I thought Delaware did a nice job against the running attack last weekend, but now they'll need to do it again as they go on the road for the second straight time against the Seawolves. It's not a big place, surprisingly. When we went to Stony Brook, it's not a a full sellout audience. But I assume that the Stony Brook students are going to show out for this game. This is bigger stakes than last year's game. This is bigger playoff implications than last year's game. And it's just a different vibe around both teams. Because at this point, Stony Brook and Delaware were close. At this point last year, Stony Brook and Delaware were close in the standings. They were close in skill level. But they were close in the middle of the pack of the CAA, middle top pack of the CAA. Now these two teams well, I would are say, top pack. I would say last year Stony Brook was a step ahead of Delaware, especially yeah, were, when all was said and done. They finished the season nine and two in CAA play, and the excuse me nine and two overall, and just one loss in CAA play, which came to the blue by the Blue Hens. If they beat Delaware, they would have tied James Madison for the CAA conference championship. That's the loss that stood in their way. They were the top echelon of the conference, and Delaware was at that second level where now. Delaware, you could argue, based on their record, is in the top echelon of the conference, and Stony Brook's sort of in that second level. But I think I would say 
personally, when you look at the skill level of all of those teams, Delaware, Elon, Stony Brook, James Madison, I'd have to say that they're all pretty similar. I wouldn't say that Delaware is significantly better than any of those teams. Even you throw Towson into the mix, who probably should have beat Delaware. They are just as skilled, if not more skilled, than the Blue Hens at this point. All of those teams, to me, are so close, which makes this such an interesting game, because if you're Stony Brook at 6-3 and three overall and 4-2 and two in conference play with your last game of the season at Albany, this is the one that would really make you feel comfortable about your playoff spot. They're going to beat Albany next weekend, going on the road. They'll they'll have the 7 and 4, 5 and 3 mark if they lose to the Blue Hens. But if they win, they'll be 8 wins overall. And then they'd be the same as Delaware theoretically if Delaware beat Villanova the following week. So if you're Stony Brook, this is almost like a playoff game. It, it really would make you feel good about your playoff chances if you can beat Delaware. If you lose, you're leaving yourself on the bubble with all of these other teams that I would say are just as good as you are. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We got our first glimpse Tuesday of the Delaware men's basketball team at Maryland in a 73-67 to loss to the Terrapins, but I thought a really strong showing by Delaware to be able to come back from what was once a 22-point deficit to cut it to 70-67 to with just under a minute and a half remaining in the, in the second half and to, to really give Maryland a scare, a team whose expectation this season is to make it into the NCAA tournament. They were coming off of a disappointing year last year where they finished 19-13 and 13 and did not make the big dance. Delaware gave them a real shot in that season opening game, and a lot of that due to Eric Carter's performance. It was an up-and-down game. Midway through the second half, we were kind of like, all right, good try, Delaware. Way to go. You, you fought. You didn't get blown out by 30. And then... Every other possession, Eric Carter fighting down low. Eric Carter off the high glass. 22 points in the second half. It started to become 10-point differential. And then once it hit three and Inglesby really stood up and yelled at his team on the court, it finally hit me that Delaware's not just playing to keep it close. And Delaware's here to win. Because you could see last year during the Notre Dame game, after it kind of got out of hand, after Matt Farrell kind of did his due diligence um, and Bozzy Colson did his due diligence before he was, I believe, ejected, actually, um, they kind of just played to keep it close. It was a great experience. It was a great stadium. There was a lot of energy around it. A little disappointed on the fan turnout, but Maryland has their own problems with keeping their fans in the, uh, in the stadium and in the seats. But I thought it was a great experience. And nonetheless, Eric Carter not only solidifying himself as a big man who can compete – but a strong first showing for someone Ingley mentioned could be the top big man in the CIA. Right, and I think that's what comes out of this game. I don't want to say all of a sudden this should be the expectation for Carter and for this team moving forward. It was simply one game. You can't really assess that much just from one single performance from 40 minutes. But I will say if Eric Carter can put on this type of performance, it will show that he has gone to the next level. And that's something that Inglesby has talked about that People like us around the team have talked about. Can he go to the next level and truly become one of the best big men in the CAA to give Delaware that inside-out scoring threat? We know that when Ryan Allen returns, he can shoot the ball from three. Last season tied the Delaware school record for most threes in a season, and we expect that once he gets back from injury all the way, Kevin Anderson will give them another three-point shooting threat and a guy who can drive the ball to the basket from the outside in, a 37% three-point shooter a season ago. Can they add that consistent interior threat, a guy who can make offense from the low block, and Eric Carter 
did exactly that, and he also showed you a little bit more. Stepping out and hitting a shot from just inside the three-point line and then hitting his first career three in the second half, there weren't enough things that you and I could say on the broadcast to praise Eric Carter and his performance and the way that he really single-handedly dug the Blue Hens out of that hole. I mentioned Kevin Anderson. He struggled in his first game back from the torn meniscus injury, which held him out all of CAA play a season ago. Anderson finishes this game 2 of 13 from the floor and 0 of 7 from 3. What did you see from the sophomore point guard in his first game back? He looked slow. He didn't really fit the game pace as well. I thought Ithiel Horton off the bench, the true freshman, did a bit better game pace-wise. might have been the injury. It might have been just him getting more acclimated because remember when he was doing his point guard duties last year, he wasn't even getting as many touches as you'd like because they still had to rotate in Ryan Allen if they were running a two-guard set, Anthony Mosley if they were running a two-guard set, and they still had Ryan Daly. He just looked slow, and I don't think that's anything to... uh, bat an eye out yet. He's coming off injury. He's coming off the first game of the season against a very competitive opponent, especially with Anthony Cowan Jr., uh, the Maryland guard, who's absolutely a speedster and a great mark uh, markup defender. Not something to really be nervous about, but it's just, it is something to look forward to. I thought his shot selection was also an issue, and that's probably just feeling your way back into the flow of a real game. He At one point, that three that he had blocked from the side, I thought was a really ill-advised shot and was probably something that he wouldn't have taken last year, but he then he goes down the other way and he made a nice defensive play to prevent ter- the Terrapins from converting after that blocked three. So I thought there were some good things, but overall, you'd like to see him sure up the offensive game, and I think we will as Delaware progresses through their non-conference portion of the schedule. You also mentioned Ithiel Horton, a guy as a true freshman that we got to see for the first time, had a team high eight points at the half off three of five shooting. It came out right away with about a second or two into the clock once he subbed in off the bench, was the first guy for Inglesby to come into the game, hit a three, a little pull-up. I thought that was a nice shot. Later in the first half, had the big dunk where he gets the and-one poster. Uh, second half cooled off a little bit, but I think a lot to like from the first time we saw Ethiel Horton. Yeah, he brought that energy, that explosiveness that Ryan Allen brings, uh, the ability to cut to the basket with ease and also hit that outside shot. You have to respect him on both ends of the floor. I think it'll be a really cool combo to have him and Ryan Allen on the court at the same time. If you really spread them wide with a three-guard set with Kevin Anderson in the middle and Ryan Allen and Ithiel Horton on the edges, kind of as those spread wing players, that could be a really interesting layout because either way they swing it, you'll have Eric Carter in the post and you'll have one of those explosive guys on the other end. And if they drive and draw double coverage, most likely the help will be coming from the wing and you'll have a Ryan Allen or Ithiel Horton on the wing to pop and shoot a three. And I, I like how he played. And I think eventually... My hunch is that that will be the closeout lineup. Down the stretch in this game, when Delaware's making their comeback, when they have the 12-0 run in the second half, it was Anderson with Horton in the backcourt, Bryant out on the wing, and Carter and Cushing as the frontcourt. I think that that Bryant spot you could see replaced with a healthy Ryan Allen when he returns, and Ithiel Horton maybe not starting for Delaware, but getting in in crunch time and being a part of that closeout lineup where you have three guys who can handle at least supposedly. I think Ryan Allen, we'll see how much he can really handle. Didn't really do much of that last season. But then three guys that you also hope can shoot the ball and space the floor. Plus Jacob Cushing, who let's Ooh, talk I was going to say was going to be the fifth. Three for four Yeah, from three in this game. Did exactly what you needed off the bench. Was a big part, probably the second piece to that run, obviously behind Eric Carter. And only got 16 minutes of play, but I thought he was the best fit as the four next to Carter. He was confident 
with this three-point shooting. And Inglesby mentioned that Eric Carter got the green light. He can shoot wherever he wants. But I bet Inglesby also turned to Jacob Cushing and said, you have a yellow light where you can shoot it if, if you're you got open, it. If you're open, yeah. you should shoot if it. If you yeah. got to take it. And you saw that the first two threes he took, he made the first, uh, made the second and missed the third on his way for a three for four shooting from three. They were just clean, catch and shoot, pushed it down low and then threw it out to Jacob Cushing. That's exactly what you wanted from him. So I think deep in the season, hopefully everyone's healthy, you'll have Anderson, Allen, Ithiel Horton, and then Cushing probably floating around on a wing and just stick Eric Carter down low and let him facilitate. And with Cushing, with his size and what he offers defensively or what he doesn't offer defensively, I guess you should say, and with him not necessarily really being a ball handler, he has to be able to shoot to be valuable if if you're Delaware. His role really should be that floor spacing stretch four. And as a junior, you hope that he's come to a point in his career where he can contribute 25, maybe 30 minutes a night. And we'll see if he gets that opportunity. He did not start the game. Delaware started with Colin Goss, the George Washington transfer, alongside Eric Carter. That lineup didn't last very long. They just went to it at the very beginning of the first half and for just a minute or two in the second half. Goss played, I think, like 11 minutes, uh, but that lineup only lasted about five minutes in the first uh, half. Goss was really getting beat up inside defensively by Bruno Fernando, who's this big NBA project um, forward for Maryland, as well as Jalen Smith, who's a 6'10 freshman forward, a similar build to Fernando. So those twin towers really didn't, you know, they, they dominated that matchup with Delaware. They eventually went small and had more success with that. But Jake, your thoughts on Colin Goss starting and eventually where you perhaps see his role with the Blue Hens. Yikes. This was uh, the biggest guy on the court height-wise, not size-wise, but height-wise at all times. And his one job, his only one job is when Eric Carter gets pulled outside the paint is to stop Bruno Fernando, to stop Smith, and at least make it harder for them. But perhaps every basket that I remember with Colin Goss in was either an alley-oop slam or a one-step move to the basket for Fernando or Smith to put it in. I don't think he did anything noteworthy. I think he will kind of relegate himself to Sky Johnson's role last year of five or six minutes whenever Carter needs a break, and if they need to do the double-big rotation, they'll put him in, but mm, seventh man, maybe eighth man at the max. And I don't, I don't get, I won't get on too much. I mean, that's a tough matchup for anybody, yeah. right? Delaware simply, and that's kind of what we got to, like you said right off the top, a couple minutes into this game, we were like, well, there's just simply not a matchup on Delaware's team. Like, this Maryland team obviously can recruit a lot more size and strength than Delaware has available to them at their level. And the Blue Hens defensively just had no way of stopping those guys. And then all of a sudden, Eric Carter gets going offensively and he makes Bruno Fernando foul out. Fernando was, I think, six for seven from the field or something like that, nearly perfect. And Jalen Smith still dominated. They gave up nine offensive rebounds to just Jalen Smith alone. He scored 19 points had a triple-double in his first career game. But I don't get on these guys too much because they're not going to face two quality bigs like that when they get to CAA play. And this is the toughest game on the schedule. So for Delaware to come out here at 73-67, to I thought was pretty impressive. Was there anybody else, Jake, that you wanted to highlight from that supporting group around the guys like Carter and Anderson that we're going to be talking about a lot this season? Anybody else getting our first glimpse at them that stood out to you? I thought Ryan Johnson looked okay. I think he kind of put the ball on the court a bit too much. Had that uh, one play where he got by the one guy on the baseline, and then he went into the two-man rotation and 
probably shouldn't have try, tried that layup. It got, I think he actually was called for a foul on the play. Yeah, I, I think he started off hot, um, but more and more he just dribbled too much. So I'll put him. I think he'll be most likely the first off the bench for the Blue Hens. Well, he started. Uh, he started yeah, this Yeah, I think game. he's going to move into the first off the bench role for the Blue Hens once Ryan Allen comes back. Okay. And I think once they realize that Jacob Cushing might be their best bet in that wing position, uh, I think he'll go. And then sooner or later, Darian Bryant. But that's a can of worms we don't need to open up yet. Uh, as he, You almost called his stat line to a T. Uh, you said two for eight. He ended up two for nine. Yeah, on the way up, I was saying, I think Darian Bryant tonight's going to open the season with a classic four points, two for eight from the field, and he was two for nine. And that ninth attempt came basically as the sh- as the game clock was expiring in the f- in the second half. So practically, he was two for eight in the game. I almost called that one. Uh, but yeah, he, he, and I wrote about this for the review, he leaves some to be desired, a lot to be desired from that three spot. And like we talked about with perhaps... Delaware playing Horton, Allen, and Anderson in a closeout lineup later this season, I think it would be important for Delaware to have another guy who can shoot out there on the floor because with a lineup with Allen and Anderson, you don't necessarily need anybody else who needs the ball in their hands, but you want somebody who can provide space for Eric Carter to do what he did against Maryland. You want to see that type of 20-point performance from Carter as often as you can, and that requires people to get out of the way, and that requires the defense attention to have to stay honest to those guys on the outside and to not allow them to, to bring extra attention to Carter once he gets going on the low block. And I'm going to say a name, and this is a name that does not do well in Blue Hen Sports Cage, but I feel, and this is not what I would like, but I feel Kevin Anderson turning into Anthony Mosley. Because... One game, one game. I know, it's one game, but Ryan Last Allen's year, Ryan Allen. Last year, I made the point on this show that I thought Kevin Anderson might be surpassing what Ryan Daly was when Anderson was at his height. I don't think we can forget what he did. It was just 11 games. But what he did in 11 games last season, he was clearly the best rookie on this team. 13.7 points per game, 37% from three, three or four assists per game, 6-5. But way too early prediction watching this. Ryan Allen's Ryan Allen. We know, we saw in the CAA well, tournament I don't, what he can do. I don't think we can say that because he's got a fracture in his foot. That's not an injury that you can just hop back into playing two months later and be And fair, Kevin Anderson was meniscus, so both of them share the same boat. So this is a way too early prediction on both sides. Kevin Anderson came back from a meniscus injury. But Ithiel Horton looked very good against a good team and a small sample size. I was very impressed with how he me did. Me too, me too. He looked like the CAA Ryan Allen. Strong, aggressive, going for shots, not backing down in the three-point line and not backing down in the paint. You put Ryan Allen, hopefully CAA tournament Ryan Allen, back on the court next to him. Well, not not CAA tournament. CAA no, regular season. He, he yeah, did he not was, play well in the tournament. He was great <laughs> until that last game where yeah. he forgot what the rim looks like uh-huh. and he couldn't hit anything. But the game before that, um, he was good. Yeah. Uh, against Elon, he. But if you have those two players, that's kind of how it was with Daly and Allen last year. And Anthony Mosley's main role was to drive, draw coverage, and just get the ball out of his hands and let those guys do the work. That might have to be Kevin Anderson's role. Well, he could do more than Anthony Mosley, but that might have to be Kevin Anderson's. I think role. you need him to do more because that equation last year gets you to fourteen wins. Right. Right. Like Anthony Mosley not being able to shoot from three. Gets you to 14 wins. You need Kevin Anderson out there because you still need more scoring than you had last season with that Ryan and Ryan combination. Overall, I think I was impressed uh, with how Delaware played. I think Ithiel Horton was a strong player on the offensive end. And one 
caveat to say that Inglesby was confident in all of them. He put all of them out. He wasn't talking to them a lot on the sidelines. He wasn't writing up multiple plays for them. He was putting them out, letting them play, and they did pretty well against Maryland. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. It's now our pleasure to welcome in Doug Barron to the show, one of our WVUD sports broadcasters. You've heard him on broadcast of Delaware football this season, and you'll be hearing him on broadcast of Delaware basketball as we move into the winter sports seasons. Doug, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. So we're going to talk uh, NFL football at the moment, about the, through the halfway mark, and it's kind of a good opportunity for us to to reset in the NFC. Perhaps we have some altering of that picture with the Rams finally having their first loss of the season, so no undefeated teams left in the NFL, and a lot of people jumping the New Orleans Saints above them in the NFC picture. In the AFC, things also starting to solidify themselves with the Chiefs and the Patriots among the top teams in the league, perhaps the Steelers getting a good hold on their division and things settling in the AFC South as well. But I want to start off by asking both of you guys, Jake and Doug, what teams or perhaps players have sur- surprised you the most to this point in the season? It seems like we're at a point now where if a player started hot, they probably would have cooled off by now. It seems like we kind of know who these players and who these teams are at this point in the season. So with that in mind, what surprised you uh, to this point in the NFL year? Um, well, one thing has been Patrick Mahomes, his play at quarterback, I think has been outstanding so far. And um, he actually has one touchdown shy of the Chiefs franchise record so far, and it's only been eight games throughout the season. And I really thought he was going to cool off, honestly. He started off pretty hot, but he's been continuing to hit his weapons. I mean, he has a lot of weapons. Travis Kelsey, Sammy Watkins, Tyreek Hill, Kareem Hunt. He just has a ton of offensive weapons. And it really looks like Nothing can slow down this Chiefs offense. I know they got an early season loss against the Patriots, and I think that's the one team that is like their Achilles heel almost because if the Patriots end up with um, home home field advantage in the playoffs, I don't think anyone's going to beat them in the AFC. Maybe in the Super Bowl, but I really just think they've come on strong after starting off 1-2. and two. I'll go with kickers as a whole. That was that surprised me. This is a year where you have the most misses for game-deciding kicks in NFL history. And when you look at it, these are not... Actually, let me backtrack. Some of these kicks are not Zane Gonzalez missing kicks. Kickers, that this is their fourth kick in the NFL. These are Justin Tucker clinkers off the post. This is Graham Gano, Mason Crosby. (laughs) Kickers that have pretty much solidified themselves as their team's kicker for the years to come. They're missing. Teams are going for two now. The Rams have the highest point expectancy when going for two in the NFL. The Panthers right behind them. The Steelers right behind them at three. This is a year, and when we're talking about things that have surprised or surpassed expectations, where teams are getting really creative when going for two. We've seen teams bust out your classic Philly specials for two-point conversions left and right. We saw high school teams. We see college teams do it all the time. But we're kind of moving away from that automatic point-after attempt, Mm -hmm. automatic field goal attempt. And that all started... Four years ago, the year they moved it back, when Steven Goskowski clinked one against the Denver Broncos in the playoffs. Well, that's the point behind them moving it back, right, is to take a play that was such a non-play, right? You watch your team score a touchdown, yeah, you and, to, and you get up and you, you walk away. You out there to block it. Exactly. You make it now something that figures into the strategy of the game, and it also makes the, I guess the percentages have always played out to where going for two more than you go just for the extra point actually does play into your favor and teams 
typically across the league, whether it's going for two or going for it on fourth down, have historically been extremely conservative. But by moving the extra point back to the 33-yard line, it even more incentivizes you to go for two from the one-and-a-half-yard line or the two-yard line, exactly you know, whatever it is. And speaking to what Jake said as far as the play creativity at that point in the field, it's such a condensed space that it really the best teams at going for it for two do come up with those creative play designs where you try to get the eyes of the defense going one way and misdirection the other way, whether it's with jet action or option, that sort of thing in the goal line, because you, you, you have to give the defense multiple things to think about. If you're going to try to get up there every time and power football it in from the one-and-a-half-yard line, that's not always going to work. It's going to work for some teams, but not a lot of teams in the NFL can do that at this point. Same deal if you're going to try to just run your typical you know, quick slants at that point in the field. Your safeties are so far up close to the line of scrimmage mm-hmm. that that makes it a much difficult, much more difficult play than it would be outside at the 30-yard line or whatever. Another thing that I wanted to bring up, and we haven't said it yet, it's James Conner. Le'Veon Bell has till Tuesday to report to the Steelers camp. If Le'Veon Bell decides not to, he can pull a Des Bryant and franchise minimum tender, a team which means he can play but cannot be dropped for the remainder of the year, and he'll be 900000 a game, which is a lot, but (laughs) it's not what money Le'Veon Bell could have gotten. And that is this is the first time that the team, and especially Mike Tomlin, I don't know if any of you heard his comments, where when talking about James Conner and Le'Veon Bell, says we want volunteers, not prisoners. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of saying, we want James Conner, it's done. And the whole narrative from the offensive line in the beginning, Villanueva was kind of like, yeah, like we miss him, we wanted him to do what's best for him. And then in the middle of the season, we were like, yeah, I mean, I hope everything's good for him. And then week eight comes around, and when you ask him about Le'Veon Bell, the offensive line's like, who's Le'Veon Bell? Like, they don't worry about him anymore. It's finally James Conner's show, and I said it a little while ago that I thought Le'Veon Bell would come back, but this is it. James Conner's the starting running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I don't think anyone is worried about him losing his job. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, he has 10 touchdowns, 9 on the ground, and 1 receiving through 8 weeks, and that's actually the most um, in Steelers' history. So he's really just assumed the role, and if you look at the stats between uh, Le'Veon Bell through eight games last year and James Conner through eight games this year, they're almost identical. So he's basically assumed the role. And going off of your point, the team wants someone who's going to want to play for them, not someone who's going to play for them because they're getting paid to or because they're getting the money that they want. And then if they don't get that, they're just holding out. It's kind of It looks kind of selfish. And in a team sport, I mean, I feel like as a teammate of him, you're not going to want to have someone who's there because he gets paid to be there. Rather, someone who actually loves the game. And, I mean, like we said, James Conner has been playing really well. James Conner's good at football. That was Brandon's <laughs> words, quote-unquote. James Conner's good at football. <laughs> like, he's been playing great. So it's like, why, even if Le'Veon Bell would come back, it's like, why at this point? Right. I made the point, and I think, Jake, you pushed back on it a little bit. I'll be curious to see if your thoughts change now a couple of weeks ago in that, based off the production that we've seen from James Conner Connor, to that point in the season and now even to this point in the season— the Steelers wouldn't be adding anything by adding Le'Veon Bell. I, I still believe Le'Veon Bell is a more talented player. He can do a little bit more than James Conner, particularly in the receiving game. But at some point, your offense has maximized as much as potential as it has on the ground. Like You're not going to run the football 85% of the time in the modern-day NFL. So I think if you had Le'Veon Bell, 
the numbers would be very similar. I don't think you're losing anything from that offense to this point in the season by having James Conner instead of Le'Veon Bell. Yeah, and I still think should Le'Veon Bell come back instead of James Conner having 100% of the touches, I still think it's going to be about 60% James Conner, 40% Le'Veon Bell because it's Le'Veon Bell. But if you when you asked me that question three, four weeks ago, I was like, yeah, it's going to be 80% Le'Veon Bell and 20% James Conner. This is now James Conner's ship. The team wants him, Big Ben wants him, and the offense wants him. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how James Conner does against the rest of their schedule. I mean, the four, next four games that they have coming up are the Panthers, the Chargers, the Patriots, and the Saints. So all high-scoring teams and teams that are in the playoff hunt. Um, so it should be interesting to see how he performs. I mean, he had one week against the Ravens where he didn't really do so well for everyone else's expectations, and maybe that was like a little bit of a cool-off. Those are expected every once in a while, but it should be interesting to see how he does. I mean, right now, the football power index, so they claim, has the uh, Steelers' second half of the season as the fifth most difficult in the NFL. So they're in for a challenge. They're third right now in the AFC, and I still think they could be a playoff team come the end of the year. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Last week, we played for the first time with Josh, Jake, and I a game called Hashtag change Jake's mind. Now we're going to bring it back for its second edition, but this time focusing on storylines in the NBA. We haven't talked a lot of basketball so far this year on the cage, but an opportunity here for us to catch up a little bit on what's been going on in the association. Jake, can you explain to both our listeners and to Doug joining us for the first time for this segment, the rules of the game and what's going to be happening here? The basis of it is I'm going to make an outstandingly or outlandish hot take. And it's not going to be something as ridiculous as the Golden State Warriors don't make the playoffs. They're going to have some bias and some uh, basis to them. Your, both you and Brandon's job, is to convince me otherwise. And the one caveat to this is you cannot bring other teams and other factors into your discussion. If I say the Golden (laughs) State Warriors will not make the playoffs, you can't say... Well, that's because the Houston Rockets will. You need to tell me why the Golden State Warriors and the Golden State Warriors only will not make the playoffs. Obviously, if some questions rely on other teams, you're free to bring them up, but we want to focus on the teams at hand. We're going to kick it off with the first one, and that is a playoff contender, and that is the Denver Nuggets, currently the two-seed in the West, will remain the two-seed in the West for the rest of the season. I'm going to say that they won't because of the defensive end. I think that's always going to be the knock on this team. Nikola Jokic, their center, their centerpiece, if you will, he struggles defensively. And I think when they you know, are challenged by teams who can get to the basket, they're going to, that lack of a rim protector will come back to bite them. It's also a very young team led by Jamal Murray, who might be in the midst of a breakout season, and Gary Harris, who hasn't been playing full seasons the past couple of years, but is a very talented two-guard so I think the toll of the 82-game season will also play a role when we get to January and February, which could cause them to slip a few spots. I think it's a playoff team. I think it's a very talented team, and a team that's pretty fun to watch, especially Jamal Murray the other night when he put up 48 points. But they will not remain in the two-seed. I would say another reason why they're not going to remain in the two-seed is their kind of lack of depth on the bench. Really, they only have Mason Palmley coming off the bench. That's as, brutal. That is brutal. As a, a scorer, I mean, you have Monte Morris as well, averaging 7.6 points a game. But it's really just, you see the bulk of their scoring from their guard play. Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Will Barton, and obviously Nikola, Nikola Jokic, who's a center. But besides him, he's really the only main force. I mean, Paul Millsap's pretty good. Um, he's not an all-star, though. And I just think 
with how even though it is more of a three-point shooting style league now, they only have one player. I'm sorry. Well, they have one player who's a great uh, three-point shooter, Will Barton. Besides that, Nikola Jokic can shoot the three. But Jamal Murray and Gary Harris, not so much. So I, I don't really think they're going to stay atop the two-seed in a league that is more three-point centered. Let's go to the other conference, the Eastern Conference. My bold prediction that you need to change my mind on is that Kemba Walker, Miles Bridges, and the Charlotte Hornets will be a top four seed in the Eastern Conference. Doug, take it away. Okay. Let's see. Pull, pull up your stats. This is a team yeah, that not many people right know about, which is why it's interesting. For those who might need to know, if you're watching any sort of sports in a top 10, the absolute dunk that Miles Bridges threw down on the baseline was one of the most impressive things I've seen and easily in contention from here for dunk of the year. This is also a, a caveat of change takes mind. Brandon and Doug have no idea what I'm going to ask them, so we need to go <laughs> on the fly to pull up their evidence. Well, the first thing that's going to change with this team is Kemba Walker is not going to score 28 points per game this season. His PR 26.8 assists per game at 5.9. Those numbers are going to come back down to earth. I don't believe at this point in his career he's going to make that type of leap where all of a sudden he's an MVP candidate. I think he is a borderline all-star. I don't think he is among that top tier of players that can lead a true playoff contending team. Right? He's not on the same scale, not anywhere close to guys like Curry, Westbrook, Paul, the point guards that lead those top-tier teams into the playoffs, Kyrie Irving, another one. The second point that I will make that will prevent them from being a top-four team is I don't think they have that many scorers outside of Kemba Walker. Bridges is 11 games into his NBA career. He's a rookie. I don't think you can count on him that way. I don't think you could book it right now that 70 games from now he'd be the same player. And outside of Kemba Walker, looking at the starting lineup real quick of Walker, Batum, Kid Gilchrist, Marvin Williams, somehow the ageless Marvin Williams and Cody <laughs> Zeller, I don't know who else on this team scores for you if Kemba Walker it comes down to life as I expect that he will. Well, I think also just like focusing on Cody Zeller as your starting center. I mean, a top four playoff team I don't think is going to have someone as – I don't know. He's not prolific at scoring, and he's not really a presence. The Cody Zeller slander starts to show through. <laughs> he's not really a presence down in the paint. Marvin Williams is more of a three-point uh, four, stretch four. So they don't really have much of a paint presence. I think that Kemba Walker could keep this up. I think he's really come into his own in the NBA. After uh, the first couple years, he was kind of rocky. But I really think he's been a consistent force in the NBA. But in terms of the surrounding cast, I don't know if it's enough. Malik Monk as we saw at Kentucky, was dominant in scoring. But I'm not sure how it will translate to the NBA being over the season three times as longer. This is really the first year he's actually getting action. And, I mean, he shoots well from three, as does Kemba Walker. So that might be able to keep them alive a little bit. But I think the long stretch of the season is just going to be too much for their starting lineup with Cody Zeller and Marvin Williams down in the paint. The next one, as we have two to go, these are individual players. The first one is that LeBron James in his will not make NBA first team for the All-Star game and miss out his streak of 11 straight times. being vote- So with the new All-Star game um, format— Are you how- talking first team All-Pro or are you talking about the All-Star game? All-Star, All-Star game. game. So when they vote the five starters on each position—five starters on each team and the top voter gets to draft the rest of the teams— LeBron James will not be in e- in the top five there's, for the conference. There's no way. 
like I I know this is the game to change your or excuse me, he will not you saying he won't be. He will not yeah, he be, be. Oh, in the, the top 5. The reason why he'll be in the top 5 is cuz he's LeBron James. So every th- this is like, half of this is fan voting, right? So he, he's going to get all of those votes. He plays in Los Angeles. They're super excited to have him there. It's the second best biggest market in the NBA. It is it, it absolutely absurd to think that he wouldn't be uh in the top 5 on in either conference. He's he's going to get the most votes of any player in the league. Um, am I, most likely, if not, he's going to be two or three behind Steph Curry or Kevin Durant. Yeah, there's there's absolutely no way that he's not. And, and he's playing to an all-star. He deserves it. He's playing at an all-star level, 26 points per game, right around his career averages of about seven and a half rebounds and assists per game, um, doing a little bit of everything with the Lakers, who have been up and down at the beginning part of this season. But yeah, he's, he's absolutely one of those all-star starters. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't think I can see him outside of the first team. I mean... He's been it for how many years has he start been a starter for the All-Star game? Assuming he does not make it this year, he will have a streak of 11 straight seasons. The last time he missed it was 06-07 when he was NBA second team. Okay. And that was when he was sec- back with the Cavs, Are you talking right? about all pro teams or are you talking no, about the All-Star, all, all-star, all-star game, game second team? Okay, okay, don't say sec all NBA second team then cuz that's that's the all pro team at the end of the season and actually matters all- for something. He's the NBA All-Star game second all-star team game. member. Okay. I mean, so you mean he came off the bench? Yeah, he came so off. The bench. That's how, what you're saying. Well, how he wasn't NBA in the first five? Right? How MB, right, Doug? As as NBA voting uh, for the All Star game goes, this current format is your top five players in their respective positions. Yeah, so two but guards. back in 2006, you're saying that year he wasn't in the starting line. He was not in the starting line, so he did not old... receive the amount of votes to be the top five player. That was conference wise. Now it's right. position wise. So he was not in his conference voted in the top five to play at that point in the East. And now it's position wise. You have to be what? The now top you have two? you have the two most likely to be the top two voting centers will get on two teams regardless of conference. So top okay. team voting centers, top two on the forward position, guard position, so on and so forth. So LeBron James would theoretically, competition wise, have to beat out Giannis, Kawhi, Durant, probably mm-hmm. AD if they stick him in that position. They probably won't. Okay. They'll let him play center. But those are the people he would have to be competing for to be in this current. We're not. Allo- are we allowed to talk about other players? In this, this case, one? you can. All right. I mean, really, the only one you could make a case that is a better player this year is Kevin Durant. The other ones, I mean, Giannis, obviously, he's doing great. And Giannis is the best player le- in the league. He's leading their team. Right now, I think the Bucks are 8-1. 8-2. and 8-2. And, yes. and, and he's at the helm of that. Um, it should be interesting to see, though, how the Lakers continue to play for the rest of the season. Right now, they're 5-6. and six. I feel like if he can turn this team around to a legitimate playoff contender— and playoff team, there's no reason why he shouldn't be on the first all-star team. Even though that doesn't really go, that's not a huge factor in the rankings, it's more individual stats, I feel like that as a part of it. And uh, just being a leader on your team, I feel like, is a huge thing. Also, I mean, Brandon make, made great points. With being out in Los Angeles, they have a huge fan base, and they're probably going to sell out almost every night because LeBron is playing at home. I, I feel like that's huge. And it is also part of the fan votes. And when have the fans not, even with all the LeBron haters, there's right. still so many in people. In Cleveland, he made it every single yeah. year. In Miami, the first time around in Cleveland, he made it every single year. There's no reason why it wouldn't be more this year. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
If you're a longtime listener to this show, you know exactly what this segment is. It's an oldie but a goodie. Welcome to Cage Rage. Jake and I will each take a few moments to let out some frustrations from what's been bothering us in the past world of sports. Used to be a weekly segment that Ahmed and Teddy introduced to the show. We're going to bring it back for this week and perhaps in future weeks here and there as, as things come up in the sports landscape. I'll go first with something that stood out to me over the weekend at the New York City Marathon. Around mile 16, there was a proposal. Really nice setting. Everybody's all, you know, excited at the moment. Wife or fiance comes running up from from the crowd of hundreds of thousands of runners, and her husband steps out, takes to the knee, and and in the process slows down her pace. That's what a lot of people were upset about. How, how are you gonna ruin the time? She's standing there. The video is a minute long. How are you gonna ruin the time? But to me, what really got me upset watching the video, not really upset, but what, what stood out to me, what, what I thought was funny, was the people then jogging behind this lady who comes over to get proposed to and stopping and pulling out the cell phone out of nowhere and runners in the New York City Marathon stopping themselves and just kind of standing next to them like, oh, I, I should take a picture of this. I'll take a video of this. First of all, why do you need that video? What are you going to do with it? These are two people you have no idea who they are. If you tell people afterwards, oh, yeah, I saw a proposal at the 16-mile marker in the New York City Marathon, what are they going to do? Ask you for p- proof? Picks or it didn't happen? It's your own race, too, that you're getting in the way of. Go run the race. You know, walk by. Maybe clap a little bit. Or give a, give a, you know, the fiancé a pat on the back if you want, if you, if you want to take the strides over. But to stop? Now, you know how much rhythm you give up when you stop in a race like that? Albeit, this was toward the back of the pack of the New York City Marathon, but that's my cage rage. If, you, if you're in the situation where you're running 26.2 miles and you have 10 miles to go and you see a wedding proposal, keep moving right on through. Let's go to the hardwood now, and this is coming in the wake of the Boston Celtics playing against perhaps one of the better teams in the NBA, and that's the Denver Nuggets. And Jamal Murray played an absolutely amazing game, dropping 49 points, uh, 48 points, I should say. And his last-ditch effort hit the illustrious 50 points. He pulls up from deep three as the clock expires, clinks off of the rim, and the ball lands into none other than Kyrie Irving's hands. And Irving, like any sane basketball player would do after a great player drops 48 points on you, is he heaves the ball 17 rows into the stands, and a young boy actually catches it, which is a nice heartwarming end to the story. But the whole point is Kyrie Irving catching and throwing Jamal Murray's 48-point ball, that's his career high, into the stance. Kyrie Irving, if you're mad that he was going for his 51st point of the night, don't let him get his first point of the night. That is your responsibility. You were marking him for a large majority of that game, not the entire game, but a large majority. If you want to be angry that he's trying to get those extra points, don't let him get there in the first place. Make that three-pointer his first shot of the night. Accept your $25,000 fine, but know that if you are so angry about other players doing well and doing good things, especially against your team, either don't let it happen or score as many points where it doesn't even matter if they get 48 or 51. Accept your fine and walk away. What a cage rage. That's what we like to call a segment called Cage Rage. Welcome back. How's it, felt, it feel, Jake? It felt good to be back. How's it feel, it Jake? Felt, it felt good to get a little bit of that angst 
out of my system a team that and especially things that I really want to talk about. But I hope this comes back more. Maybe sure. not next week, but soon enough when we have another yeah. thing that rustles our jimmies and feels right. like we we're need not going to gonna get worked up just cause. Yeah, that's but a, when that's there, no fun. but when there are a thing, I mean, th- I mean, then we'd be Stephen A. and First Take. Maybe we'll make a lot more money. But um, when there are things that that get us upset, you know, yeah. gotta 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 cage rage it. That's part of the show. 